Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, founder of The Naked Voice, and this is our new online community where we are exploring, deepening, and evolving our awareness of the transforming power of compassion. Enjoy these new dialogues with a wide range of artists, musicians, writers, and philosophers, social entrepreneurs, and sacred activists. They are all visionaries, transforming lives through the art of conscious creative expression with practices inspired by their own unique life experience. The Voce Dialogues are dedicated to the compassionate evolution of life on Earth. Well, greetings, everyone, and it's my great pleasure to be talking with my dear friend, Stuart Pierce. And I just want to share a little bit with you about Stuart. But first of all, big welcome to you, Stuart. Oh, bless you. It's so wonderful to be here sharing communion with you and speaking to all these wonderful, wonderful people. It's just glorious. So thank you for inviting me. Well, it's just such a joy. And here we are in the middle of this global reset on Earth. And so it just feels like a really timely moment for you and I to be talking about the nature of compassion. And the voice is such a messenger of it and an embodiment of it. But first of all, everyone, Stuart is a legendary global voice coach. Stuart, you've worked with change makers and celebrities for 40 years. You are, you were the head of voice at the Weber Douglas Academy in London, and you then helped to pioneer Shakespeare's Globe Theatre as master of the voice there. And that's where I was lucky enough to meet you. Mm. Uh, You have coached luminaries such as Eddie Redmayne, Mark Rylance, Amelia Clarke, Believe it or not, Margaret Thatcher, Mo Molem, Benazir Bhutto, Anita Roddick, Diana, Princess of Wales, and Marianne Williamson, not to mention the London 2012 Olympic bid, and so much more. Now, Stuart, I'm lucky enough to have seen your various books, which you, you just write with such facility and accessibility. Your books, The Alchemy of Voice, The Heart's Note, The Angels of Atlantis. You have created The Angelic Heart, Sigil's Oracle, alongside several award-winning recordings. And of course, your most recent publication is really the focus of our Voce Dialogue today, which is your book, Diana, The Voice of Change which expresses entirely new revelations about Diana's life principles and her personal vision and radiance and about how she ignited that personal radiance through really quite a complex personality as a young child, which is totally understandable looking at the conditions in which she was brought up in. You and I have just been talking really and just had a lovely conversation offline about the moments in your life when your relationship with sovereignty and with compassion itself 
really started from a very, very young age as a child. You described it to me just now as that experience as a child of spinning out and how your mother would bring you back and hold you in a confidence as a young child. Would you like to just launch out from there and tell us about that? I just... mm, mm, mm. So thank you for the context. I believe that we were really talking about the power of sound and how sound in its evocation of creation has met yourself and I in a series of different ways. And I was referring to the extraordinary gift, but also bane, the blessing and the bane of my childhood in the sense of the fact that I uh, was brought up in an unusual circumstance that my parents were royal servants, so very in connection with the royal family. So we were brought up in all of this privilege. But at the same time, my mother was an immensely earthed individual. And so was constantly uh, making sure that we had connection with the world. My brother and I were both state educated. We weren't sent to private schools, etc, etc. So there was this, you know, this balance in the dichotomy. However, the specific details that we were talking about was the fact that I was born with this ability, or rather just very, very open channels. I feel that we all have the ability. It's just that some some of us on a sensory level or on an educational level or on a, a moral level are switched off mm-hmm. uh, or physiologically we're switched off or indeed through trauma. And so we stop seeing what I refer to as being the multidimensional universe. So in other words, I was brought up um, both in town and also in the country where I was very aware of nature with an extraordinary force within it. So it, this force flowed and moved in an ebbing flowing fashion that literally supported me so I would jump onto the force and I would flow with it and this would happen literally as well as metaphysically so it would happen you know within my body and also metaphysically so that sometimes I would move into trance and then find myself in a completely different part of the world so to speak which in the countryside was fine because everything was very secure in those immediate post-war years in town was a little bit it was a little bit strange this was then defined as narcolepsy and my mother, as, we were, as you were just suggesting, was one of the greatest grounding or earthing tools for me. Because often, when I was in the incandescence of what I was seeing, in the sense of seeing spirits, seeing elementals such as fairies, seeing angels, the angels were always with me. And they always appeared as these beautiful beams of light or these orbs of light. The beams were often radiating out of an orb. And so I was longing to see human beings with wings, but none of them, they, they never came <laughs> because, you know, we were, we were brought up as Christians in a very traditional way. And the family church was St. James's Piccadilly, which was built by Wren. And of course, there are many angels in stained glass windows or as little statuettes. And so I was longing to see uh, human beings with wings, but they never came. In other words, I saw these transcendental elements of light And sometimes the energies, I guess, for a five, six, seven-year-old child, as I was, were a little bit too intoxicating. Mm -hmm. And my mother would always say, come here, and would just draw me into her body and hug me, and then take me through what I suppose is an elementary meditation of feeling the breath slow down, and of how the energy of her hug, in other words, the energy of her love from her heart, from her solar plexus, from her pelvis, effectively, because I was a small child hugging into the womb of her body, 
that this energy would move through me and then she would talk me through, feel it going through your spine, feel it going through your feet into the earth and grounding you. Now, how does that feel? Oh, that feels so much better. <laughs> and she was good. Okay, now let's go for a walk. Oh my goodness. You know, so, so it's interesting, isn't it, that now we're much more sophisticated about using processes um, such as this, whether it be through sonic meditation or through yoga or Tai Chi, one of the martial arts, or indeed our own personal walking through nature and making sure that our bodies are fully grounded. And therefore, the thing that interests you and I is how our voices can be truly grounded and be part of our bodies, because evidently there, there is a malaise in our world which has educated and conditioned us into fighting against the machines, which means that so many people, you know, just live in the head and use this sort of energy, as opposed to really being in the body and, as you and I express, residing in the heart as the seat of the soul. So how did this all unfold for you from those early years into adolescence and into present day life? To be honest, you know, the, the, the unreal world, the world of spirit, in other words, um, which was very real to me, was extraordinary. And I felt I was cast, as it were, in an energy of wonder and awe when I floated on these waves of energy. But in the 3D world, it was very challenging and mm. I couldn't do what I was expected to do. I couldn't read. I tried and tried and tried, but I just couldn't see what it meant and, um, and was numerically dyslexic. So I was beaten very thoroughly as a child and told constantly that I was nothing and was nothing. And also I was a child that didn't want to engage in the social activity of the other children, which was seemed to me so boisterous and crude and rude and violent. So I spent a lot of time just hiding in the corner mm. as far as 3D adults were concerned. As far as I was concerned, I was talking to all of my unseen friends. Mm. Um, so all of that became a little bit too much, to be honest. I mean, I've always had this slightly precocious nature. So I've always opened my mouth and spoken. At around seven, I realized this was stupid. So I shut up and I stayed shut up for two years, oh. which was very worrying for my parents who immediately consulted psychiatrists. And in fact, I seem to remember spending a number of hours in a psychiatric institute. Oh. Uh, and met this beautiful, beautiful doctor who was a female pediatrician who came along and said, this child is not mad. This child has hypersensitivity. What we need to do is this. And I was extricated. But I stayed silent. And I found that in silence, I was able to observe, of course, in a completely different way and feel an extraordinary stillness. Oh, my goodness. This is wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Funnily enough, I've just been looking at a film about the life of Emily Dickinson. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's communicating her relationship with other worlds that nobody else obviously could see and were responsive to at all. And that, again, generated the same issues as happens and has happened for so many hundreds of thousands of children who've been brought up in this kind of colonial, imperial, right, wrong, left brain reality. And it's so beautiful how there's just enough caring from her parents, um, even though they seem to be really sort of mind boggled by her, that they are able to allow her at least a context within which her poetry can start to unfold. But there's something about the kind of abusive or, or just ignorant context in which, uh, social context in which she was brought up. 
that somehow was instrumental in catalyzing this genius that came out of her and this uh, hypersensitivity, as you would say. And then that was followed by obviously the written word in her case. And then that just blew my mind that none of that was even seen until after her death. The language of the soul is really what we're here for. It's what we're here to celebrate and to, to share. And there's something about this time, of course, that is hopefully finally waking up to this reality. We can no longer live in this colonial universe of oppression and left-brain rational kind of authoritarianism. We cannot live in that anymore, can we? And, and obviously the work that you're doing with The Voice and the, the work that you have enabled others, the way in which you've invited and been invited into conversations with people whose voices like Eddie Redmayne, I'm thinking of, you know, Mark Rylance, Maggie Thatcher, and obviously Diana, which is what I would love us to talk about more. There's been something about the way in which you learnt to navigate your own childhood upbringing and then to allow that to alchemize into your own quite unique teachings on the conscious use and the compassionate use of the voice. Beautiful, yes, absolutely, absolutely. So many, so many thoughts have occurred to me. And, you know, maybe as we, as we begin to move on into another area of our conversation, to finalize what you were asking me to share, I feel that there were a number of redeeming features that percolated through me and sort of rather like a fountain would spring forth, trickling to begin with and then become a greater force. And one of them was that although I was being told consistently in very wrathful and somewhat ruthless ways by people, particularly the teachers, that I was nothing and I would always be nothing, there was a voice inside me that said, no, you are something. I just didn't know what that something was mm -hmm. until I started to mature through adolescence, discovered sound and discovered the ability to read. Now, that was a stroke of genius from my ma because she she was aware of the fact that in my silence, I was always humming or you know, little, little, little songs would be coming forth. And she said to my father, you know, I think we should put Stuart into a church choir. I think he may learn to read through song. And that's indeed what happened. And, and, and of course, I started, I just copied the boys, you know, the choristers. I just mm -hmm. ate them, parroted them. Mm -hmm. But then I realized that what I was seeing in front of me in the missal or the, you know, the, the hymn sheet or whatever we were singing, that the notes were a topography because I, I was always seeing sound. And that if I could rein the wave of the sound in to the topography, suddenly there was a meeting point between the crotchet or the semibrieve or, you know, the bar. Mm -hmm. And the words underneath mm -hmm. were within the substance of the flow. So I started reading singing and then learned how to read speaking. Oh. But it was because I was actually engaged in the flow. So there was that, do you see, which led, me, which led to approbation. And what I noticed, having always been disapproved of, particularly from my father, who was just frightened, you see, he didn't know what on earth he'd created, this feminine, creative child that was constantly talking about spirit. So it just frightened him. So he became immensely aggressive. He was a warrior. You know, he was a professional warrior. He'd been a soldier and decorated officer and blah, blah, blah. 
he was just frightened. So he became draconian in his discipline, which terrified me, you know, the, t the levels of testosterone, because I could see what was coming out of him. When he was loving, it would be very, very soft, beautiful pastel colors. But most of the time, he was very angry. And his anger appeared like shards of light moving through, but they were like broken glass. And so I would protect myself by putting my arms up in the frenzy. And of course, that disturbed him greatly, because he thought I was just crazy. So there was this, this uh, awareness of people would say, there's something about your voice. And I would think, oh, there's something about my voice. I didn't know what that something was. But that's a line that people have always used. They've decorated the twist of fate that I've moved through, or the wheel of fortune when it clunks forward for me. There's always been somebody saying, but there's something about your voice. So that's really interesting. So I let that love, because I saw what happened in their fields when they were admiring or kind and so I let that drench me mm. and uh, that fired my will to keep moving forward mm. so there was another reality it wasn't just that I was cast into hell paradise was there because I could see it energetically I did not meet it in 3d but I saw it energetically and of course over the last what 30 years I began to see in moments when um, I'm held in sublime creation with vibrations such as yourself, I begin to see, oh, it's possible to create this in 3D because I see the level of rapport, of um, extraordinary empathic and compassionate connection between people. And there is paradise. There is the Garden of Eden. That is so lovely. I just want to really just acknowledge that what we're speaking about here as extraordinary as it may sound, is utterly ordinary, isn't it? We're talking about something that is so precious that exists in every single individual. Because I, I, I'm aware that I'm hearing us speaking right now. I'm aware of a kind of response to this kind of exuberance and joy, actually, isn't it? It's just like massive joy that lives in the body that is accessible to us all but that how society, our culture and so on, has been hell-bent on responding to real joy, like ecstatic joy, as children know, with immense suspicion and, and therefore fear and therefore terror and therefore thou shalt not. Yeah, yeah. And I think what's happening now, by the grace of God, is that we are really literally before our very eyes now, we are seeing a complete opening and an awakening to this realm of grace, of unconditional loving presence that was accessible to you as a child and also to myself that actually is showing up now because people have had to just simply lock down the old way of living and being and perceiving reality to literally be simple enough and ordinary enough to actually see that who they are, the grace, the beauty, the glory of who we are, is right here inside the human heart. And you were just speaking just before we recorded of your first vision of Diana. Mm -hmm. You were much younger because there you were in the royal household because of your parents' work. And then how she then happened into your life again at a later stage, which then gave birth to your coaching her and developing this very special friendship with her. I'd, I'd love to hear more about that, and I'm sure everybody would. Yes, it was, uh, I suppose there was a, an interval of probably 15, 14 or 15 years. 
Mm. Well, no, actually, it would yes to time it in relation to Diana's chronology. Mm. It would have been thirteen years actually between the casual encounter in the royal enclosure during a garden party at Buckingham Palace, mm. and then the the meeting, the mature meeting, as it were. Many years later, was organised by an extraordinary woman who was a great patron of my work called Mara Burney. Mm. And Mara um, was a restaurateur. Mm. Mara owned the famous San Lorenzo restaurant in Knightsbridge. Mara was an extraordinary lady, and with the equal ability to, you know, to the, the, this exquisite sensitivity, and so used her intuition or indeed her psyche with with great effect and impressed a lot of people by her accuracy to as it were identify mara the the st- the rolling stones mick would call her at three o'clock in the morning after a concert and say oh mara can you please make us some pasta and so she'd get up and make the boys pasta and feed them that's that's how she was she was extraordinary absolutely extraordinary and so she'd said to me in early 95 uh, there's somebody I want you to work with, and it's Diana, because she'd taken Diana under her wing. And I said, no, I couldn't possibly. I couldn't. I mean, it's an honour you asking me, but I can't be involved in all of that circus. And she was very she was very firm with her desire for us to meet. And I said, no, 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 no. I, I don't see how I can serve her. Because at that time, it was a frenzy around Diana. And I just felt so deeply on a compassionate or empathic level that over the years she'd sought counsel or indeed healing with a number of very well-known healers. And she'd worked with them for some considerable amount of time and then moved on. And what they did had taken their story to the daily newspapers and made thousands of pounds. But of course, what happened for Diana, as I could read psychically, that there were these huge gashes of betrayal within her body. And I just didn't want to be part of all of that. I just thought, oh, no, I couldn't possibly do that. However, then, you know, a number of months later, Mara said, there's somebody I want you to meet. And I said, who is it? She said, just come to the restaurant, have lunch. And I loved Mara and I loved her food. So I I said in a very sort of cavalier fashion, "Okay, I'll come. And as I arrived, you know, at the restaurant, uh, the head waiter was standing, who I knew very well because I went, went there a tremendous amount. And I said to Pepe, you know, who's Madame with? You'll see when you get down. (laughs) So I went down into the basement of the restaurant, walked into this salon, this private room. And there was Mara and there was Diana. And the room was full of this joy, this love. Of course, Mara said, oh, Diana, this this is Stuart. And I sat down next to Diana and she grabbed hold of my arm and said, you will work with me, won't you? You know, sort of coming deeply into my field with these extraordinary blue eyes. And I have to confess, I just fell in love. I fell in love with this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful being. Or rather, I suppose a better way of putting it is I rose to love because her love was just incandescent. And uh, in that moment, I said, of course, but you must understand our relationship must be completely confidential mm-hmm. so this and she said well what, is, what do you mean and I said well do you mind coming to me in Chelsea so that I don't come to what was known as KP you know Kensington Palace mm-hmm. and she said absolutely absolutely and I said can we make all of our appointments by cell phone because cell phones were just around at this time this was 95 and she said yes yes and I said can you pay me by cash so that I don't have to invoice yes 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 can we please therefore have a completely confidential relationship and she said absolutely absolutely so that's what happened and in fact it was a saving grace because it protected her Hmm. she was able once or twice a week to come into this extraordinary 
inner paradise that we created, where she was able to just metaphorically let her hair down. And sometimes that meant we would laugh in an incandescent way, or she would weep and weep and weep and weep. And I would help her see a way of dematerializing the fractures through transmutation and move from negative into positive. So she gradually grew and the final vestiges of bulimia left her mm-hmm. so that she was able to sleep because mm-hmm. she was a, you know, an immense insomniac mm-hmm. and, um, and eat healthily. So her body became healthy. She was very tuned into her kinesthesia and loved swimming and loved working out. So there wasn't, there wasn't a hardship in saying, Diana, could you do something about toning muscle? Because I wanted her to be able to really live through the fullness of her spine. And being a tall lady, but at the same time winnowed by ridicule or disparagement or disapprobation, she was always shrinking into her solar plexus. So I wanted her to lift up, which she did through all of the work that we did together or that she was primed through her fitness instructors and so forth. Mm -hmm. And as a result of then the internal work of finding her note, finding her voice, which we called the voice of change, Mm -hmm. and which was the voice of love, you know, because I, as it were, encouraged her or sometimes seduced her into understanding that her love and her intuition were far more important, far more significant, far more powerful than any of the hankerings that she had to -hmm. discover a greater intellect. You know, she was always saying, I'm as thick as a plank, which wasn't true at all. It's just that she was interpreting her mental body and emotional intelligence through this intense sensitivity. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, it was obvious that she wasn't destined to become an academic but was surrounded by a lot of rational thinkers who were extremely prodigious in the way that they articulated their intelligence. Mm -hmm. And of course, were criticizing this frailty, this vulnerability, which it's true, she would, if she were here, she'd be the first person to, to admit it, had led her into unusual behaviors. You Mm -hmm. know, at Sandringham once she tried throwing herself down the staircase and was found at the bottom by Elizabeth, the Queen Mother you know and then protected i mean that sort of extreme behavior like that and of course as we know through our hearts we can see that it was just a cry of desperation of please just hold me and love me and ground me Hmm. Um, so i came at a great time for her the divorce had been mentioned of course it still needed to go through fuller negotiation which finally happened in early 96 yes because i began working with her in 95 And we went through 95, 96, and then she died in 97. And once the divorce was announced between herself and Charles and the negotiations of you are no longer HRH, you are just Diana, Princess of Wales, the release of the personal protection officers, she felt so much freer. And that's when her radiance through the, you know, the radiating element of her love because she felt free to resonate into the world and to develop the charitable endeavours much more fully. This is where she really became involved in what was happening in Africa, Mm -hmm. HIV or indeed the landmine issue, Mm -hmm. and gave of herself very fully. And it gradually, 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 she became more aware of this is safe now. Yes, yes. Yeah. So you knew each other for that very precious last three years. Yeah. And that then ultimately gave birth to the transmission of her, her vision, really. 
Yes, I mean, there are many books written about Diana, and some of them are excellent, but they're mostly a social diary mm. of her life, you know. Mm. Um, and often they're quite excoriating because they arise out of the, the intellectual arena of our world, and often the heart is closed or is, is challenged by moving into the more emotional aspects of Diana's inner life. Mm-hmm. And so it was very intriguing how it happened. It was about three and a half, maybe four years ago now. Let's say three years ago. I was publishing another book, which was about my angelic work. And I was having a conversation with my agent. And we were finding it difficult to gain representation through publishers. We wanted to move from a minor publisher that I'd been previously published by very excellently but we wanted a more international publisher Mm. and they'd refused because they were just swamped by books about angels (laughs) whereas 20 odd years ago when I started writing about angels they of course were clamoring for books about angels and so we had to rethink the proposal and that's when my dear darling agent who's become a great friend of mine Mm. said to me well wait a moment you worked with Diana I must admit my response was reactionary by saying I'm never going to write a book about Diana and Mm. she said well let's just gently talk about it for a moment because the book that you write won't be a kiss and tell it won't be a discursive text where you disempower the memory of Diana what you will do I feel is to write a book that will serve the arousal of the divine feminine And when she said this, this portal opened and Diana came whizzing in. And I said, darling, do you know that Diana's here? And she said, yes, I could feel her. Mm. So think about it and let's talk again. Well, we had to come to a close in the meeting. And I walked from where we were meeting back to my home, which took about 25 minutes. And during the walk, which was slow, I remember, because I was deep in thought, I saw the whole of the book. Wow. And then it was a question of, well, where am I going to find time in my diary to write this? Mm. Uh, Because I was about to go to the States for major projects and et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly all of the projects were cancelled. So I sat in my apartment in London and wrote for three, four months. And Diana was with me the whole time. Oh, God, beautiful. So just speak a little bit about the book and, and how the book is shaped and how it reveals the transmission of her life and her understanding and her wisdom. Yes, so I I spicily say that the book answers the unanswerable and questions the unquestionable. You know, the key questions that we have or the key awarenesses that we have of who was she and what happened? What was that thing that happened in August of 1997 when she passed? So the book is really a transmission of her essence in other words, the revelations about Diana that are not included in all the other books, which are really like court circulars or social diaries, which serve their purpose, but don't actually allow us to understand who she truly was, in, both in the glory and also in the, in the challenges that she was experiencing. So that's what I've journeyed into. And of course, what I've done is not to write it as a diary, but to write it through the chronology of the way that we explored empowerment processes there are essentially 12 key principles that are revealed throughout the book. And they're, they're practical exercises that we engaged in to empower Diana so that she could feel herself moving on a very deep sensory or emotional level mm-hmm. from victim into victor. Which is what everybody is needing to learn right now, which is, couldn't be more important. 
it does feel this way, doesn't it? You know, particularly as we face this time of lockdown and many people are immensely challenged by coronavirus. I've been into hospitals this week working with two doctor clients. You know, that's a whole different story because it's staunched by fear. And then those of us who are in, in our homes in social isolation, many people are cast by fear but also are bewildered by what on earth is going on. So it does seem that it's a, a time that you and I have discussed where there's a very deep listening taking place and a profound softening into peace and stillness so that the Divine Mother can speak. And I feel that she's here to show us how we can develop a new gestalt, a new way of being, a new level of living, so that we're not going back to whatever we called normalcy from before. This will need a tremendously acute level of sensitive negotiation uh, between all of us in a co-creative way, and particularly in relation to the governing systems of our planet, Yes, uh, who are obviously learning a tremendous amount about the force and the will of the human species at this time because we're saying no we're not going to do that or and this is going to become more overt hopefully as martin luther king would have encouraged or as gandhi would have encouraged through non-violent peaceful protest we're going to say no 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 and the old order will have to change the values that we once espoused become relived resurrected and fully remembered in our consciousness so that we move into co-creation and parity and justice and care, love. Mm-hmm. And, and to understand without blame or shame how the, you know, the unconsciousness and the ignorance that has so dominated the field of humanity for so long has served its purpose. You know, and its purpose now is to really absolutely herald our, the awakening of human beings. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, it's interesting because it's so overt through the agency of transparency today, isn't it? Whether it be through uh, mass media communication, social media, or genuinely through just being physically present and meeting it. It's so easy that we can tune into a news broadcast and see Mr. Trump engaging in a palpable falsehood in front of us that uh, is purely and simply to do with his own sociopathy rather than to do with the nature of what it is to be a great leader. So we see it in front of us. We see it. So he's an extraordinary gift to us in the sense that I would, I wish he would stop perpetrating the gross ills that he's perpetrating, particularly in relation to the division of minorities, social minorities, or those who are of a different sexual orientation, mm. or indeed in relation to women per se, you know, who's, who evidently is in complete disregard or disdain of. You know, the fact is that we're seeing it in front of us. And by the way, apropos your your statement about non-judgment, I didn't want those observations that I've just revealed to be perceived as a judgment. I feel that they're just a discernment. They're just an observation. Because there's nothing within me that Mm -hmm. I have complete compassion for him. There is nothing within me that wishes to project my own anger, frustration, irritation, or spleen Mm -hmm. into his in his direction. That's my responsibility, Mm -hmm. rather than offloading onto somebody else. And I feel that that's what a judgment is, isn't it? It's when we are so grossly affected that we want to project into somebody the violence, the disdain, the hatred, or the fear that we hold. Well, Uh, it's obsession, isn't it, with blame and with the need to project onto an enemy. Yes. You know, and I, I, I sense that's what's brought this 
particular issue of the coronavirus really into the whole light of day for everyone because, I mean, there are so many other horrendous, you know, pandemics going on with children and trafficking and homelessness and drugs abuse, racism and so on, that haven't been met with the same attention. Whereas this, because it is so indiscriminate, has generated this unconscious terror of our duality, the terror of our own mortality. That's really what it brings us up in front of. And so as a humanity, we have got to access the skills required to navigate this situation so that we take that projection of the the enemy hook or the blame hook and we bring that back to ourselves and we breathe and we open to our own ignorance and we acknowledge our own failings and our own vulnerability, the many ways in which we, however subtly, have contributed to what we're now witnessing on a grand scale to actually be willing to embody and to take responsibility for that and to give voice to that is really what I'm hearing in your incredible, rich and extraordinary life, uh, which has culminated in this extraordinary book of Diana, The Voice of Change, how your book is offering people an opportunity to really explore how they can take responsibility how they can develop these skills, which are essentially empathic, leading into compassionate skills that must be embodied, not just, as you say, intellectualized, but really fully embodied. If I may add something of my own referencing or perception, Mm -hmm. um, that I feel that deep within the archetypal membrane of much of which you refer to, um, but within, you know, within the worlds that live within the world, so to speak, there is a presence of the divine feminine or the sacred feminine of the of the divine mother, who is saying, "Bring this to me, and I will hold it for you." Yes. And as a result of that, all of the anger, all of the blame, all of the dissipation, all of the depression, all of the disease, suddenly evaporates in an immensely magical way. I feel that we're being given this opportunity. And this is indeed what happened to Diana, if I may just tell a very quick story, because there was a fundamental transition for Diana, and it was when she met Mother Teresa. Ah, yes. So she went to Calcutta to the hospice to meet Mother Teresa. And interestingly, Mother Teresa had fallen very, very unwell and had been flown to Rome for emergency surgery. And so when Diana arrived, Mother Teresa wasn't there. However... Her sisters, meaning her nuns, took Diana solo, without any of the retinue, into the chapel, and they either knelt or sat on the floor. And the nuns sang to Diana. And they sang songs of Mary and also the Lord's Prayer. They sang the Lord's Prayer. And um, Diana described it as being rather like a Gregorian chant. And in the middle of this, she felt an energy come into her, which she described as being, I know I was graced with the the force of the Holy Spirit. I know that Divine Mother was there within the force. And I suddenly saw what the purpose of my life and destiny was. But I need to become a peace ambassadress. And all I need to do is to resonate love around the world. So, So, you know, huge force came into her where she yielded from the dance of vindication. 
She mm-hmm. yielded from the striving, notice me, no, this is unjust, which was also, you know, caught up in a degree of blame, of course, because she just, when she began to find her power, she really wanted to say, no, you're not going to do this, you know, rather than just simply recognizing that it was a wonderful point of test for her soul to move into a transition where she could relinquish any of that and allow her soul to become bathed in divine love, which, of course, is ultimate forgiveness. Mm. And so this is all in the book. You know, the other bit that keeps nudging me, which I'd love to mention, is the fact that, you know, in, in our movement together through the coaching process of two years and, and how it was decorated by the varying experiences that were going on in her life, which needed to be expurgated or expressed or, or healed in some way, that we discuss the nature of, well, what is this, what, what does it mean quintessentially to be the queen of everybody's hearts? I mean, it's a very nice phrase, but what does it really mean? And during our discussion, one day I said to her, well, you know, you are a chosen one. So you were being destined to become the queen of England, which means that you would have been consecrated. But as you're no longer in that position, I feel that what we need to do is to ritualize the nature of what it is to be the queen of everybody's hearts by consecrating you, and particularly by recognizing that you're being anointed by oils. It's just a metaphysical oil rather than what any monarch has experienced in the consecration of coronation, where there's this sacred moment, which is deeply magical, of the monarch being not made bare, but of being stripped from majestic clothes mm-hmm. and sitting very purely. And the Archbishop of Canterbury, being the, head, the high priest, so to speak, uses an oil which has an antecedent that goes all the way back to Solomon's temple and places the oil on the forehead, on the hands and on the breast of the monarch. And in that moment, they are invested as God's eyes on earth. Yes. Which I believe is what our contemporary incumbent, Elizabeth II, is suggesting that she would never abdicate, even though she's now 94. She would never abdicate because she's anointed. So she believes absolutely in the role of that fulfillment, you know. And so this is what I took Diana through. There were seven moments of consecration. And this was what enabled her to ignite her radiance and let it shine through the world and effectively to meet that final moment in earth terms, which was the triumph of her death and where she chose to pass, Mm. um, which was effectively in the Pont de Alma tunnel in Paris, which of course means the bridge of souls. And I go into uh, an inquiry into why there and why against the 13th pillar. And that's when we move into the metaphysical aspects of her lineage, the Spencer lineage, and how her position can be seen as being immensely evocative mm-hmm. as a spiritual vessel that came to us to allow the awakening of the divine feminine, as we saw at the point of her death, or indeed on the day of her funeral. Wow. Where it's registered that 5.9 billion people, which was over two-thirds the population of the planet in 97. Today, of course, we know we're 7.7 billion But then it was way over because of the telecommunication processes. We know how many people watched and wept and felt the force, which I believe was the force of Shakti, which is a deeply archetypal force affecting change. What we're experiencing now to create parallels is, of course, not sudden, although I suppose the virus came quite quickly. It's a more more sustained process, isn't it, for us to awaken to 
yes. the qualities of teaching that we're receiving about the gentleness of our hearts and the empathic and compassionate natures of our souls mm-hmm. and how we can begin to express them rather than arguing with one another or expostulating opinions yes. about what's going on and is this a great scam? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And if I may just say one final thing about the book and what interests you and I most, I believe, is that the the crystallization of Diana, the voice of change, of course, really means the voice of love. And how do we physically live the voice of love? And I, I feel that that's the, the bit that, you, that fascinates you and I. How can we embody this rich sense of promise rather than suddenly shooting off into that domain of how we can really come into the resonance of compassion? Yes. Well, may that be so. Dear Stuart, thank you for your continuing life's work and thank you for Diana, the voice of change, which is its own website, dianathevoiceofchange.com. Dear friend, thank you so much for this wonderful Voce Dialogue. Well, bless you. Thank you so much. And also, equally, I want to mirror the extraordinary thanks that I'm sure we all have, I know I certainly have, for the extraordinary witness that you bring to the divine in our world through all of your exquisite work and, of course, through the immense beauty of your personality. So thank you very much for inviting me. And if I may just also add that we're recording this in the middle of April, and at the moment, the audio book for Diana, the Voice of Change, of course, it's my voice reading it, is on special offer for a very, very small sum of money. So if you quickly go to www.dianathevoiceofchange.com and to the shop, you'll see it. Aha. So everyone, get there and just discover this absolutely magical magical story one of the great feminine voices of our time and thank you so much for that transmission and for your book obviously i can sense there's so much more to share there may well have to be more virtue dialogues following uh, in the line of this conversation but many thanks to you and thank you to all our listeners for absorbing and also taking responsibility for our own compassionate voices <laughs> 